0: What a great blessing for us to be together, an opportunity we have to worship God together as He has called us to do, and I'm prayerful that this time we have together will be edifying for you, that these text, this text we'll be looking at today in Luke chapter 5 will be an encouragement to you as you serve. Certainly the best thing we can do in our time together is examine His Word. He is our focus. He's the reason that we're gathered together today. Thankful for those who are online with us, those who are here in person. Those who will later on be listening to this lesson through our website, we appreciate uh, your desire to serve God. We want to help you in that as best we can. This text in Luke chapter 5 has always caught my attention, and since we were reading through this in our daily readings this last week, I thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, kind of pull, pull out some things that have always spoken to me from this text. So you see that as Jesus here In Luke chapter 5, as he's going about, as always, we see him teaching the multitude. It's impossible to read through the Gospels and not recognize that Jesus was teaching at every opportunity he had, both by words and deeds. In fact, that's how Luke begins the book of Acts. He says, after I I had written to you, Theophilus, but all the things that Jesus both began to do and to teach. So we see that all through the book of Luke. Jesus teaching as he's doing and teaching by his words. And so in the first three verses here, he's teaching this multitude that's pressing about him to hear the word of God at verse 1. Verse 3, he gets into a boat and pushes out a little bit from land. They've been all around him. They are coming to hear the word at this point. They'd already heard and seen a lot. If we were to go back through Luke 4, which we don't really have time to do, but if we were to go back, starting about verse 14 or so, we begin with Jesus in Galilee. He's at the Sea of Galilee here, the Sea of is the Sea of Galilee. But when he was in uh, the region of Galilee... He taught in one of the synagogues there at Nazareth uh, where that uh, he was fulfilling the Isaiah scroll that he was reading from. And that had to be an astounding thing for them to hear. Luke 14, verses 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in you're hearing. <laughs> and so some of these people were now following Jesus. They had heard him say these things about himself. These are incredible things to say. That's an incredible confession. It's blasphemous if he is not in fact the Christ. So some people were intrigued and they're now following him and they're part of this multitude. There are others from Capernaum who had seen the miracles. He cast out the demons from the man who was possessed there. And then later in the evening in Capernaum, he was healing and casting out demons from so many who had come to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And then he had gone around in a circuit through Galilee preaching in all their synagogues. So many of these people had been hearing Jesus for a, a short while at least. And they had seen some of the miracles he'd done. And so they're pressing about him for more teaching as he's here at the Sea of Galilee. And so he gets into Peter and Andrew's boat. We find out later that they have this fishing business together. And so he pushes out a little bit uh, into into the water. That way, not everybody's pressing around him. He kind of creates a natural amphitheater. It makes sense for him to be a little bit apart, kind of like the setup we have here. It's easier for all of you to hear me if I'm a little bit apart. If I was sitting in the chair over there in the middle, only the people right around me would most be able to hear. So Jesus has done this. Interestingly enough, there's usually a breeze coming off of the ocean onto the land, so that would carry his voice even more. Jesus has taken advantage of the natural situation there. If we go back and look at John chapter 1, we'll see that this is not, if we go forward and look in the, <laughs> in the order it's in our Bibles, but uh, going back in time to John chapter 1, we'll see that Jesus had actually already called these men before. They already knew Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John already knew him. In John 1, starting at verse 35, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and, seeing them, follow, uh, seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? He said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. First found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. We could go on through the rest of John chapter 1. We would see that some of these men have already known Jesus for a while. What we're seeing in Luke, though, is sort of a second calling, a confirmation of these men, as Jesus is going to call them away from their profession to begin following him in a more direct way, not just following his teaching, but following him and learning to do what he's doing. So he teaches the crowd for a while as he's launched out on the boat, and then he turns his attention to these that he's going to make apostles soon. He tells them to launch out into the deep there in verse 4. And it's interesting what he's going to do with them eventually, but first he's just separating them from the crowd. He's isolating them so he has an opportunity to teach them. This is often what he does when he wants to give some more detailed instruction. He's speaking in great generalities to the multitudes, and he'll speak some very specific things. But then when he gets alone with the, with the apostles and with those who want to know more, he gives a little more instruction in Mark chapter 4. I love the way that this is worded in Mark. I think this is just a beautiful thing for Jesus to say. I believe Matthew carries it the same way, but I'm used to the text in Mark. In Mark chapter 4, after he teaches in, in general the parable of the sower to the multitude, verse 10, "...when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, "...to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables." What is he telling them there, that they've got some kind of special blessing? Well, in essence, they do. But the reason they have this special blessing is because they've come back and asked questions. That's the same promise that's really given to us. If we will dig deep and we'll ask questions about what Jesus is teaching, then he'll reveal more. And the whole New Testament does that. The the deeper we dig in our studies, the more God reveals. His desire is that all things that are hidden should come to the light. He hasn't revealed things so they can be a mystery. In fact, the idea of a mystery is an uncovering. He's revealing things so they can be revealed and can can be known. In chapter 9 in verse 2, after Peter has declared that Jesus is the Christ and then sort of shows by his actions that he really doesn't understand what he's talking about, tells Jesus you won't go to the cross after he's just said you're the Christ, Jesus decides to show him some more. And in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He gave them a little deeper understanding, and they were the ones who were following him and seeking after this deeper understanding. There is a need for both public and private study, and Jesus certainly taught that example as he taught the huge crowds, and then he pulled away those who were more interested and gave deeper private study. We don't have time to look at all of these texts. Today we were looking in Acts chapter 28 as the Apostle Paul called the Jews to his own private residence. First he met with all the leaders and studied with them and then he called those who were more interested to come and for the span of two years they were able to come to his private residence. As he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he was down in Miletus, he said, You know that I taught publicly and from house to house. You all know my manner of life among you. I spent my time teaching you. All things that were necessary and all things that pertain to what Jesus was, would have him teach. All things that were valuable. So he did both public and private teaching. But what's striking about this text in Luke 5, as he's had them launch out into the deep, is he's got them apart so he can teach them. He's going to teach them in an active parable. They're going to participate in this parable with them. He says, let down your nets for a catch. Now, they've been washing their nets. they finished their fishing. When he came to the boats, they were done. They were cleaning up after, their, after the night's work. But he says, let down your nets for a catch. And Peter protests, just like Peter. Verse 5, Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. And I can see Peter doing that. I can see us doing that. He has got a lot of experience. In fact, he's got some immediate experience. They've been fishing these very waters where Jesus is saying, let down your net. They haven't caught a thing. And so Peter says, I don't think so. We've already exhausted ourselves with trying in this place here. But something else to consider. Now, they have an idea that Jesus is this great teacher. But what kind of life experience does Jesus have? Jesus is a carpenter. These men, after all, they're professional fishermen. What is this carpenter going to tell them about catching fish that they don't already know? What kind of experience, what kind of knowledge does a carpenter have that they don't already have about fishing? Who, who are they to listen to a carpenter when they're professional fishermen? And so he's kind of defending his own knowledge and his own experience on this. And so often when we think about preaching... <laughs> When we think about reaching the lost, we come up with some of these arguments first. Well, those people we know aren't going to listen to the word. We've got experience. We've already tried to talk to them. They don't care. They're not going to be interested. Or we may say, well, you know, how is this person going to help me? What does this person know about preaching? What is this technique that these untrained and unlearned men have brought to me? How is that going to help? What we see Peter do next is interesting. He says... Lord, we've, we've fished all night and caught nothing. However, at your word, I'll let down the nets. <laughs> I don't know if he's just trying to kind of appease Jesus and say, you know, we, we really like you. We understand maybe, maybe there's a lesson in this for us. You are using these kind of cryptic lessons. So nevertheless, at your word, I will. But I think there's some more that we see here. Peter has seen and heard an awful lot from Jesus even though his natural inclination is to protest he recognizes who he's talking to and he says well at your word though (laughs) since you are the one who's able to do all of these things Peter was there to hear him proclaim that Isaiah is being fulfilled Peter was there to see him cast out the demon in the synagogue and then to heal his mother-in-law and then to heal the whole city Peter's been with him as he's gone in this circuit preaching and so now he's seen and heard enough to trust Jesus So it doesn't matter that Jesus is just a carpenter. It doesn't matter that Jesus is saying some things that are fairly unorthodox and none of the religious leadership is liking him. At his word, I trust him enough to try to do what he says. In fact, what we learn, the more we trust Jesus and the more we deliver ourselves to doing things at his word, is that it's God's word. And God's word trumps all arguments. Again, we talked about these verses Uh, slightly today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this concept that Paul brings again Paul was a learned man he was taught in in history he was taught in the Jewish uh, uh, law but he's trying to teach Gentiles in Corinth (laughs) and they've got so much more knowledge than this Jew would have and he's trying to teach Jews in Corinth and he's using all of this trickery in his teaching and so neither one of them is liking what he's bringing about because the gospel is a stumbling stone for both in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message, message preached to save those who believe. In verse 25, he says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We can't reason in human and fleshly terms when we're dealing with the Word of God. The Word of God is going to do what the Word of God is going to do. We can't stop it, and we can't do it. It's the Word of God that's going to do it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There is something that can get in the way, and I would say this is our own hearts and the hearts of those who are listening. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That would include our own thoughts being brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, as well as the thoughts of those that we're teaching. If we want to come up with an argument based on experience about why what God is saying to do is not going to work, We need to think again. Who's got more experience at dealing with humans' broken hearts than God? If we think our knowledge and the way that we've always done things and the way that we've learned to do things is going to be better than what God has brought, we need to humble ourselves. Paul had to learn that lesson. We need to learn that lesson and bring every thought into captivity. It's not our knowledge and experience that are going to win anything with the gospel not our knowledge and experience that are going to win anything in terms of getting rid of our own sin. Our knowledge and experience is what brought us into sin. But it's the power of God's word that will bring us out. And Peter has learned to trust Jesus. And so he lets down the nets. And as he does that, going back to Luke chapter 5, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. It's just amazing. They had been out fishing all night in that very spot. There were no fish there. And yet as Jesus says, Do what I'm telling you and you'll see what happens. There are suddenly enough fish to break their nets. There's so much they have to signal for their partners, James and John. You find in verse 10 that they were partners with them. They had to call them over to help pull up these nets and put them in the boat. And there's so many that both boats are filled to the point of sinking. That is some heavy catch of fish. This is not what they're used to. Their experience was useless because what God was bringing was so much more. Their knowledge was useless Because what God was bringing was so much more. In fact, as they're all amazed about what's going on, Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He realized that this is not not natural. This is not something that Jesus as a carpenter has decided he can figure out how to catch fish better than these fishermen. This is something that Jesus as the Son of God, as the Creator, as the one who knows how to draw all things to Himself, this is something that He has done. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, when Isaiah saw the glory and the holiness of God filling the temple, he said, depart from me. I'm a man of sinful lips. And God said, well, I'm going to send you to speak, and I'm going to fix your lips. But he understood he was in the presence of, the holy, of holiness. And, G- and uh, Peter does the same thing with Jesus. Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. All of these professional fishermen that are in these boats and are seeing this, they're amazed they've never seen a catch like this. This is something that just drives home the absolute greatness of this miracle. What's amazing, and I love how both Luke and John do this very specifically, there are tons of witnesses to the miracles that happen. They're not in the presence of one person that's off in a forest somewhere by himself and sees Jesus do something. There's a multitude around when these happen. Here are professional fishermen that have never seen a catch like this and they've fished these waters dry all night long. And now they've brought in so many fish that they're all amazed. Luke is recording this for us. Luke, as an objective observer of these facts, has interviewed these people. And these men have all said, you would not believe. Our boats were sinking, confirming the greatness of this miracle. And so it's interesting the way Jesus responds Peter falls down and says, depart from me. They're amazed at this. Jesus' first words are, do not be afraid. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Now, Peter's amazed because here he is a sinner in the presence of obvious someone who's got divine power. And Jesus' first response after this miracle is to reassure Peter and the others who are with them, Do not be afraid. His miracles are really meant to offer proof, not a threat. Now there is a veiled threat, if you will. If they're in the presence of God, they're in the presence of the judge of all men. But first off, the miracles are meant to prove that Jesus is God. Romans 1.4 says He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit declared Him to be the Son of God. By lineage, He's the Son of David, which is also already amazing. But the Holy Spirit, resurrecting him from the dead, proved, offered absolute proof that He's the Son of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, as Peter begins his sermon, he says, Men and brethren, there's a man attested to you, proven to you by God, who went about in your midst performing miracles. You yourself saw this, and yet you condemned him to death. But God proved him to you. That wasn't a threat, it was just an offer of proof. But I love how Paul says it in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, speaking to pagans, he offers the same proof. After he talks about the fact that God is not made by man's hands and doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands and isn't like anything that man could come up with, that God is the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things, he says in verse 30, Acts chapter 17, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Again, this miracle of resurrection is meant to be a miracle of assurance, of proof. He doesn't say, now he's threatening you all because he's brought this man back from the dead. If I'm not doing his will, there's a threat in that because he's also going to be able to condemn me. But what he first wants to offer is proof. This is my son. This is the one who can bring you back from death to life. But Jesus starts off by saying, don't be afraid. That's the reaction to the miracle at first. And then he says, from now on, you will catch men. They're going to end up losing their profession. They're going to leave their their profession to do something else. They've just seen something impossible. And Jesus says, you're afraid because of all these fish? You're going to do something even more impossible. You're going to start fishing for men. Because nothing is impossible with the Christ. Later on, they're going to have this same moment of, of misunderstanding. And I just love how Jesus deals with this. In Luke 18, when the rich young ruler comes up to uh, Jesus, in the midst of his, his disciples there, the apostles together with them. here's a man who's got it all together. He's kept the commandment since his youth. He's been blessed by God, by being rich, by having authority. Here's a man who, on the outside, the apostles are thinking, well, this guy's got his golden ticket. <laughs> He's into heaven already. But Jesus tells him in verse 22 that he still lacked one thing. He needed to sell all that he had and distribute it to the poor. Then he would have treasure in heaven and come and follow him. Then he needed to come and follow Jesus. But he became very sorrowful and went away because he was rich. Some have suggested that when he came to Jesus and said, what more must I do to inherit eternal life? He was kind of suggesting, well, you know, I've already done everything. Is there anything else you could ask of me? I mean, am I not perfect in this? And certainly that's the attitude the apostles seem to have because, verse 24, Jesus says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? If he can't be saved, then, then who can be? It's impossible. And so Jesus said the things which are impossible with men, they're possible with God. Don't be afraid because of what you've seen. You say something impossible, it's because God is working. And God's going to use you to do the impossible as well. And so I want to talk in the time that's, that, that's left to us about this lesson of them becoming fishers of men, as it said in Matthew. I want us to understand a little bit about what, what Jesus is teaching in this parable is he's taking the apostles out by themselves and he's showing them what he's going to be using them for. I think there's some generic lessons that we can learn, some good lessons from this. The first thing is we need to understand that these fishermen are not used to a line and pole. This is not bait fishing that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching about dragnet fishing. And to understand that, we need to look at the example in Matthew 13. I think this is a really helpful thing to consider when we consider the gospel and some of our own excuses for not sharing the gospel with others. Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the, at the, end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You see what happens here is the net is just thrown out, it just drags everything along with it, catches some of every kind, When we bait fish, we are trying to think about, wonder what kind of fish is in that water right there. Is it a catfish that will eat just whatever I throw in? Is it a bass that I've got to put a lure on for? Is it a trout that needs a fly? And so we begin to think, what kind of bait can I use to appeal to that kind of fish that's going to be out there? But we don't see that being the way that the gospel preachers did that. The net gathers some of every kind. The dividing of good and bad is done at the end, so we begin to think, well, it's just a stinky old catfish. I better work a little while before I have the right kind of bait for that. Here, a bass is pretty easy to catch. I'll just throw out my favorite lure. Maybe I'll bring this bass in, but we keep missing for some reason. <laughs> We're not throwing out the dragon Dividing good and bad is done at the end. We don't get to judge ahead of time the good from the bad. That's something that God and his angels are going to do. We just throw the net out. The fisherman's job, Jesus said here, let down the net. <laughs> and the net, of course, being the gospel here. Throw out the gospel. Drag in every kind. I know there are issues and there are doctrines that are involved in the gospel, and we need to be aware of in teaching those, but gospel teaching is not primarily issue-based. Unless, of course, the issue is the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul taught everywhere he went. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Brethren, when I came among you, I decided not to know anything except Christ and Him crucified. Chapter 15, when they're starting to dawdle about the resurrection, he begins with the basics. Christ, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again the third day and was seen by many witnesses. All of this according to the scriptures. Those are the basics of the gospel. That's what you need if you're going to stay strong. You need to remember the basics. In Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, that's what he said he taught them. All the basics of the gospel. That's how you throw the net out. Now, I'm not saying it's not important to think about some of the issues. Some of the things that our friends who would call themselves Christians but aren't might have been snagged by. Someone else is also bait fishing. And people will throw out what they think will be appealing. They'll go in the neighborhoods and find out what do the people in this neighborhood really like? Well, let's invite them all to a penguins game. And afterward, we'll have a potluck and we'll talk a little bit about Jesus. And once they feel like they're part of the community, it's going to be hard for them to get away. <laughs> have they fished with the gospel? <laughs> They've made some attractive bait. They may have even had the word Jesus in the bait somewhere, but they haven't taught the gospel. Sometimes our first inclination is to throw out something like, well, you know, women can't be pastors. That's a great truth. But that may not be where we ought to be starting with people. That's a truth that if they love the Lord, they'll be ready to follow that. If this is what the Lord says, then I'm not going to become a pastor if I'm a woman. I'm not going to give authority to a woman as a pastor. Because that's something the Lord says not to do. But it's because we fish them with the Lord, not with the bait. So sometimes we have this temptation to want to be bait fishers. It may have been bait that attracted us originally. But we're thankful that what dragged us in was the gospel. It's the Lord who converts us. If we'll convert people to the Lord, then they won't need the bait. What happens with the bait sometimes, though, is we get someone to switch from one bait they thought they liked to one they like a little bit better, Yeah, I like this doctrine, but there were a couple things over here. What you guys are doing, yeah, that's much more appealing. But what have we done? We've switched from a denomination to another denomination. Well, we haven't stopped serving ourselves and what we like as debate to start serving the Lord, who often is going to present things we don't personally like, but we know are true, and therefore we're going to do what he says and not what I want. Bait fishing has some detrimental effects in the end because it makes people seek only that which they desire. And do so if they don't, they don't want to have a part of, they either cast it off and kind of go along or they just quit altogether and try to seek some bait somewhere else. To succeed, we must be dragnet fishing. And to succeed, we must act at his word. It's not a product of our experience and our knowledge, just like it wasn't a product of Peter's experience and knowledge that helped him bring in that great amount of fish. It was Jesus saying, fish right here. Cast it over here. And Jesus brought the increase. If we'll cast the net where Jesus says to cast the net, and if we'll cast the net that Jesus says to cast, he'll bring the increase. We've got to trust in his word and not our experience and our knowledge. It's not a product of church doctrine. We don't just start putting together all these great doctrines of the church as bait and throw those out and hope people are going to come. The church is a result of serving Christ. It's not where we start so we can then find Christ. The church is a result. In Acts chapter 2, if nobody had obeyed the Christ, no one had obeyed the gospel that was taught, there wouldn't have been a church. But because they did, then the church began. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul doesn't say there are certain baits that we'll use that bring salvation. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. 1 Peter 4.11 says if anyone speaks, let them speak as the oracles of God. That's what we need to be doing when we're teaching. Not just saying one thing or another that happens to be in the word of God, but ministering with the strength that God gives. Speaking the things, all of them, that God speaks. That God may be glorified. Our motivation to act and the confidence to act ought to be coming out of his word and not from any other source. There are so many people that look in to these great books on, on how, to, how to bring disciples in. For a time back in the the late 80s and early 90s, there was a brother who was going around talking about how to get your church to grow. And unfortunately, he wasn't talking about how to make your church grow spiritually. He was saying, make the outside of the building look beautiful. Pave a really nice parking lot because people that don't have a place to park will feel like it's inconvenient. They won't come. Every single thing that he was touching on and brethren were buying this stuff up and saying, oh yeah, we need to do that was all physical external stuff. He wasn't saying teach the gospel truth. (laughs) He wasn't saying throw the dragnet and bring in everybody. He was saying appeal to those who have an eye for things that are appealing. It's unfortunate that that was such a popular movement. And still so many today will see that. We've got to make ourselves appealing to visitors. Now we don't want to make ourselves unappealing to visitors, but what needs to appeal to people is the gospel. If we're so concerned about outward appearances, We're going to get people that are concerned with outward appearances and later on we'll go looking for something else that's more attractive. Our confidence and our motivation must come from his word. Because the truth is, what looks impossible to us is made greatly possible by him. It's not impossible to God. That young ruler that seemed like the perfect man to go into heaven, Jesus could see his heart. And because he loved him and had compassion on him, he told him the truth. The man turned away. But you think that didn't affect the others who were standing there listening? They heard the same truth. They didn't go away. They began to give up everything. As Peter even said, Lord, we've given up everything. He says, yeah, you'll be rewarded richly. And in the life to come, (laughs) eternal life. The impossible is made greatly possible. I'm not saying it won't require hard work. Peter and John and James, they had to pull those nets in. Jesus didn't, like, levitate the nets into the boat. They had to do a part of the work. They had to throw the nets out. They had to bring them in. Matthew 28 and verse 20, Jesus sent the apostles out to teach. Ephesians chapter 4, this text, if you've not contemplated deeply this text, I urge you to do so. Ephesians chapter 4, look at the blessing that Jesus has given us. And this is a blessing that requires work. Although he's given us the ability, we've got to put it to use. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11, "...he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men." in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We might think, Paul, you got that wrong. (laughs) God gave to the church evangelists, apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, so they can do the work of ministry. (laughs) That's not what the text says. These were all teaching offices that were given to the church so that the members, so the saints, can learn the work of ministry, of service, of serving one another, of building the church from the inside, so that we can't help but express it to the outside. It takes hard work and effort. We need His help. We need His Word. And we need each other be doing this, but the impossible is made greatly possible. And in the end, the gospel results in a change of profession. Certainly these men, says they forsook their profession to, went to go after him. But all of us, in some way, experience a change of profession. We profess to be one thing and in Christ we profess something quite different. That's literally a change of profession. In Luke chapter 24, I was talking with Art just, uh, just last week, I believe, about this text and how beautiful this is what Jesus says. Starting in verse 44, he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There were three things that were necessary there. Jesus had to die. And Jesus had to resurrect. You see what the third one was? The preaching of repentance needed to happen. If Jesus had died but not resurrected, he was just a man. If Jesus had died and resurrected, he is the Christ. But if no one heard about it, what good would have done? All three of those things are equally necessary in Jesus' estimation here. And so we all need to be involved in letting people know about the Christ. And there's many ways we do that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, you've got the men praying publicly with holy hands raised. And I just love how it naturally flows right into the work of the women. And it's interesting that in the context, the women aren't going to be doing these public prayers with their hands raised as the men were, but they are going to live in such a way that is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So often one of the things that's said about us is, well, you don't involve your women in the ministry. Well, no, they're not speaking publicly. God has forbidden that. But they ought to be involved in ministry. Women are saints, are they not? Ephesians 4. The teaching ought to be done so that the saints can be involved in the ministry. How are you professing godliness with good works? Women and men. It's, a, it's the same concept that's being talked about all through the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 2. The men are seen first, in the women. But it's all a profession of godliness in our good works. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, perhaps more well known, this concept of being ready to defend our faith. In the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, he's talking about when they come with a sword. <laughs> Sanctify the Lord or Jesus as Lord, or the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Does anybody ever ask you to defend the hope that's in you? Are people seeing the hope that's in you? Do you live in such a way that shows that you're not facing this world the same way everybody else is? That this coronavirus panic, that politics, that death in general... Does not affect you the same way it affects everybody else in the world? Because you have an absolute and a perfect hope in Christ. Are people seeing you as different? Because if not, perhaps you're not professing godliness. There are opportunities every day, where we work, where we go to school, where we shop, when we're driving, that we're professing godliness. (laughs) That we have opportunities to show people what the Christ has done in our lives. How he's taken me, an impossible person, And made me something possible in the teaching of the gospel. We need to become involved in full-time fishing for men. We need to be conscious of the fact that everywhere we are is where God has allowed us to be. So that we can be throwing out that dragnet and bringing other people in. It's not bait fishing. I don't have to worry. Do I know enough about this little detailed subject that somebody asked me about? I've got to have a response. No. Do I know enough about Jesus to say, if I don't know the answer to that question, I know who does. Let's go look at him. If I can bring people to Christ, then I can throw out the dragnet. That's what needs to be done. This little account of these men in the boat and Jesus showing this parable of throwing out the dragnet just helps me so much to remember where the focus ought to be. It's on the gospel, and it's on the one who is the gospel. It's on Christ. That dragnet's always being thrown out. We can be thankful that it, it got us. We were dragged in. That dragnet has brought all kinds in. We're of those all kinds at the moment. Our response to the gospel, according to Matthew 13, will determine whether we're the good fish or the bad fish. Are we going to be kept, thrown into the baskets with those that God wants? Are we going to be tossed into the outer darkness? Your response to the gospel will determine that. If you're not a Christian today, we're throwing the dragnet out. Our desire is to bring you in for the Lord. We want you to know Him, to desire Him, and to serve Him. We want to show you why we believe and where our hope is. And if we can help you to know Him, we want to do that today. If you already know who He is and you know what He teaches, you desire to become a disciple of His. If you're willing to come forward repentant of your sins, confessing Him as the Christ, and to have your sins washed away in baptism, we want to help you do that. And if as a Christian you haven't been living in a way that professes godliness, if you haven't been prepared just to throw out the dragnet everywhere you go, We want to help encourage you with that as well. Whatever your need might be, if we can help you in it, make your need known, whether here today or online. Reach out to us so we can help you. Our desire is to help you serve the Lord.